My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 189, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Jeremiah 18 through 21 and Ezekiel 48. Jeremiah 18. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of the potter. So are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, This is what the Lord says, Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, It's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, Inquire among the nations, Who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? Does its cool waters from distant sources ever stop flowing? Yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways, in the ancient paths. They made them walk in my byways, on roads not built up. Their land will be an object of horror and of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. Like a wind from the east, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their disaster. They said, Come, let's make plans against Jeremiah. For the teaching of the law by the priest will not cease, nor will counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. Listen to me, Lord. Hear what my accusers are saying. Should good be repaid with evil, yet they have dug a pit for me. Remember that I stood before you and spoke in their behalf to turn your wrath away from them. So give their children over to famine, hand them over to power of the sword. Let their wives be made childless and widows. Let their men be put to death, their young men slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses. When you suddenly bring invaders against them, for they have dug a pit to capture me and have hidden snares for my feet. But you, Lord, know all their plots to kill me. Do not forgive their crimes or blot out their sins from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. 
This is what the Lord says. Go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests and go out to the valley of Ben-Hanam, near the entrance of the potherd gate. There proclaim the word I tell you and say, Hear the word of the Lord, your King of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I am going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hear it tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children and the fire as offerings to Baal. Something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call this place Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hanam, but the Valley of Slaughter. In this place I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies, at the hands of those who want to kill them, and I will give their carcass as food to the birds and the wild animals. I will devastate this city and make it an object of horror and scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of all of its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh because their enemies will press the siege so hard against them to destroy them. Then break the jar while those who go out with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and this city just as the potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. They will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. This is what I will do to this place and to those who live here, declares the Lord. I will make this city like Topheth, the houses in Jerusalem and those of the kings of Judah, and will be defiled like this place, Topheth. All the houses where they burned incense on the roofs to all the starry hosts and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Jeremiah then returned from Topheth where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and stood in the court of the Lord's temple and said to all the people, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Listen, I am going to bring on this city and all the villages around it every disaster I pronounce against them, because they were stiff-necked and would not listen to my words. When the priest, Peshur, son of Emer, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. The next day, when Peshur released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord's name for you is not Peshur, but terror on every side. For this is what the Lord says, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. With your own eyes, you will see them fall by the sword of their enemies. I will give all Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon, who will carry them away to Babylon or put them to the sword. I will deliver all the wealth of this city into the hands of their enemies, all its products, all its valuables, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah. They will take it away as plunder and carry it off to Babylon. And you, Pashur, all who live in your house, will go into exile to Babylon. There you will die and be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. 
I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning and a battle cry at noon, for he did not kill me in the womb, with my mother as my grave. Her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Peshur, son of Malachjah, and the priest Zephaniah, son of Messiah. They said, Inquire now of the Lord for us, because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us, as in times past, so that he will withdraw from us. But Jeremiah answered them, Tell Zedekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am about to turn against you the weapon of war that are in your hands, which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians, who are outside the wall beseeching you, and I will gather them inside the city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm and furious anger and in great wrath. I will strike down those who live in the city, both man and beast, and they will die of a terrible plague. After that, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the people in this city who survived the plague, sword and famine into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to their enemies who want to kill them. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy or pity or compassion. Furthermore, tell the people this is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. They will escape with their lives. I have determined to do this city harm and not good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will destroy it with fire. Moreover, say to the royal house of Judah, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says to you, house of David. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. I am against I am against you, Jerusalem. You who live above this valley on the rocky plateau, declares the Lord. You who say, who can come against us? Who can enter our refuge? I will punish you as your deeds deserve, declares the Lord. I will kindle a fire in your forest that will consume everything around you. Ezekiel 48. These are the tribes, listen by name. At the northern frontier, Dan will have one portion. It will follow the headlong road to Lebo, Hamath, Hazan, Hazar Anan, and the northern border of Damascus next to Hamath will be part of its border from the east side to the west side. Asher will have one portion. It will border the territory of Dan from east to west. Naphtali will have one portion. It will border the territory of Ashtar from east to west. Manasseh will have one portion. It will border the territory of Naphtali from east to west. 
Ephraim will have one portion. It will border the territory of Manasseh from east to west. Reuben will have one portion. It will border the territory of Ephraim from east to west. And Judah will have one portion. It will border the territory of Reuben from east to west. Bordering the territory of Judah from east to west will be the portion you are to present as a special gift. It will be 25,000 cubits wide, and its length from east to west will equal one of the tribal portions. The sanctuary will be in the center of it. The special portion you are to offer to the Lord will be 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 cubits wide. This will be the sacred portion of the priests. It will be 25,000 cubits long on the north side, 10,000 cubits wide on the west side, 10,000 cubits wide on the east side, and 25,000 cubits long on the south side. In the center of it will be a sanctuary of the Lord. This will be for the consecrated priests, Zadokites, who were faithful in serving me and did not go astray as the Levites did when the Israelites went astray. It will be a special gift to them from the sacred portion of the land, a most holy portion bordering the territories of the Levites. Alongside the territory of the priests, the Levites will have an allotment 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 cubits wide. Its total length will be 25,000 cubits and its width 10,000 cubits. They must not sell or exchange any of it. This is the best of the land and must not pass into other hands because it is holy to the Lord. The remaining area, 5,000 cubits wide and 25,000 cubits long, will be for the common use of the city, for houses and for pasture land. The city will be in the center of it and will have these measurements, the northern side, 4,500 cubits, the southern side, 4,500 cubits, the east side, 4,500 cubits, and the west side, 4,500 cubits. The pasture land for the city will be 250 cubits on the north, 250 cubits on the south, 250 cubits on the east, and 250 cubits on the west. What remains of the area, bordering on the sacred portion and running the length of it, will be 10,000 cubits on the east side and 10,000 cubits on the west side. It produced will supply for the workers of the city. The workers from the city who farm it will come from all the tribes of Israel. The entire portion will be 25,000 cubits on each side. As a special gift, you will set aside the sacred portion, along with the property of the city. What remains on both sides of the area formed by the sacred portion and the property of the city will belong to the prince. It will extend eastward from the 25,000 cubits of the sacred portion to the eastern border and westward from the 25,000 cubits to the western border. Both these areas running the length of the tribal portion will belong to the prince, and the sacred portion with the temple sanctuary will be in the center of them. So the property of the Levites and the property of the city will lie in the center of the area that belongs to the prince. The area belonging to the prince will lie between the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin. As for the rest of the tribes, Benjamin will have one portion. It will extend from east side to the west side. Simeon will have one portion. It will border the territory of Benjamin from east to west. Issachar will have one portion. It will border the territory of Simeon from east to west. Zebulun will have one portion. It will border the territory of Issachar from east to west. Gad will have one portion, and it will border the territory of Zebulon from east to west. The southern boundary of Gad will run south from Tamar to the waters of Meribah Kadesh, then along the Wadi of Egypt to the Mediterranean Sea. This is the land you are to allot as an inheritance to the tribes of Israel, and these will be the portion, declares the Sovereign Lord. These will be the exits of the city, beginning on the north side, which is 4,500 cubits long. The gates of the city will be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates on the north side will be the gates of Reuben, the gates of Judah, and the gate of Levi. On the east side, which is 4,500 cubits, will be the gates 
the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which is 4,500 cubits, will be three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is 4,500 cubits, will be three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The distance all around will be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on will be The Lord is There. We ended Jeremiah 17 and our last reading with what biblical scholar Matthew Patton calls Judah's heart, which is so enslaved to counterfeit treasures and lies that it is willingly choosing death. Jeremiah is speaking out on God's behalf, but he is being mocked and opposed at every turn. And from Jeremiah 17, we almost viscerally feel Jeremiah's discomfort. In response, Jeremiah is calling out, and God's answer is a commission to perform yet another confrontation at a gate. I don't know why, but I find this moment in the story oddly encouraging. Have you ever felt like you were calling out to God, asking for deliverance or healing, and what you seem to sense is a keep-going response? Cece Winan once stated so poetically that sometimes God delivers us from the fire— and other times, he just makes us fireproof and lets it burn, burn on, burn on, because he knows, God knows, we're going to learn something out of this pain, and that it's going to produce his transformational power and presence. He's challenging me, us, I think, to rethink our attitude towards pain or discomfort, because God is more concerned about our development than our comfort. I don't think this means he desires our discomfort, but he cares more about who we are and therefore our development is of the utmost importance. I also remember being challenged recently with this question. How would you help to teach someone patience? It probably wouldn't and couldn't mean the removal of all hardship. That's for sure, right? So pain, discomfort, so often is not authorized to completely destroy in the cases we've been reading in scripture. Take the case we read in chapter 18 today of Jeremiah, the story of the potter and the clay. So the potter, the Lord, can take marred clay, representative of us, and transform it into something new, something he knows is best for us. Notice, the potter didn't start over with a whole new source of clay, but reworked what was already there. The question is, will we allow it? This theme of storytelling reminds me of what Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, coined as a type of literature called a yucca catastrophe. So it's not simply a happy ending or a comedy or a tragedy. Miriam Adonai, the author of Kingdom Without Borders, The Untold Story of Global Christianity, describes this type of story as a grand cosmic tragedy with innumerable small scenes, but magnificent new life emerging out of it all because of who God is. He is goodness, order, wisdom, knowledge, and grace, and His justice cannot allow for oppression and wickedness to drag creation and all that He loves back into nothingness. God must uphold fairness and righteousness, order and His goodness so He is offering redemption and restoration to creation and those He gave dominion within it. 
In this story, we get this sense not only of rebellion and Jeremiah going back and forth, really. He's gutted and then he's angry. But we get this sense that the people are so filled with hatred for Yahweh that they take a sense of satisfaction and pride in choosing death because it rejects him. I mean, that is scary to have that kind of mindset. And the hope is only reawakened in this story through judgment. Not rescue in this case, but through judgment. So at first, it reads like the actions of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, led to permanent death. But as we started into chapter 21 today, and we will read through chapter 24 tomorrow, there's something new, a way to life possible through the judgment. Notice how chapter 21 talks about God using Judah's weapons of war against the people and who could defeat the Lord, right? But then we read in chapter 21, verse 9, that the way to permanent death is to remain in the city. The way of life is to surrender. As Patton says, this paradox is profound. The only way to gain one's life is to accept death and surrender oneself into exile. So trusting in God's ability to make us fireproof, to rework us into who we need to become for Him, that circles me back to how we started. Sometimes we must go into the fire, the wilderness, exile, to fully sit in our need for a Savior instead of resisting our need for one and therefore opposing Him and His way and His gift of transformation the way He wants it done. And this is the first step to life, right? Patton makes connection with this Old Testament theme to Acts 5, 39, and Luke 18, 31. I'm reminded of the fact that I can't learn or become good at a new sport or instrument or skill unless I work at it. And often there's an unlearning to that learning. And that process can often be painful and tiresome. Have you ever tried to learn a new language? Like your brain is tired, it hurts. So why wouldn't we just expect that our transformation in Him would not also be trying and tiresome. We can't upload patience and we can't upload Christ-likeness by pushing a button or doing something like that. We can't airdrop it. We can't surrender and begin God's journey of reworking us, transforming us, and redeeming and restoring us until we're ready to surrender. We also ended the book of Ezekiel today. Dr. Block characterizes the last eight chapters of Ezekiel into four parts. Under the subheading, Envisioning the Good News, stand by and see the return of Yahweh. So chapters 40 to 43 had to do with the new temple. Chapters 43 to 46, a new Torah. And the chapters 47 and 48, a new land. And then the part of chapter 48 verses 30 to 35 have to do with a new city. So in the new land, there is this life-giving river, which evokes Edenic imagery, so Eden imagery, back from Genesis 2, verses 10 to 14. But there is a twist before here, as Dr. Block describes, here, the ancient Garden of Eden narrative of a river is described as the temple of Jerusalem, as the source of blessing and nourishment to dry and thirsty land. No, we don't know the source of the water, but we can perhaps assume dot, dot, dot. And if you've read ahead, this river is spoken of again in the last book of the Bible, Revelations, specifically chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And my pastor, Pastor Elmore, reminded me today, the throne of God and of the Lamb, who we know is Jesus, is the starting place of the river. It's the outpouring to all creation and all He has given dominion within it. 
It's a never-ending and uninterrupted source of living water. It might be interesting to note, and I learned from Daniel Block's commentary on Ezekiel, that Bishop Theodoret of Antioch, who wrote this about 420 years after Jesus, so I think he lived 393 to about 458 AD, he drew the following connections regarding the river and the garden context. First, the river, he suggests, signifies the grace of Christ, who, according to the flesh, derives from the threshold of the divinic line. Second, the river increase signifies the growth of the church. Third, the fourfold measurements signify the four evangelists. Four, the depth of the lasting sounding signifies the relative depth of the last gospel. Fifth, the fruits of the trees signifies good works where his people put him on display and are prodigally generous. And sixth, the foliage signifies the inner joy that accompanies good work. Seventh, the course from Jerusalem through Galilee to the desert and on the Dead Sea signifies the course of the gospel across Galilee to civilized pagans and barbarians. Eighth, the freshening power of the streams. Water signifies the sanctification of the myths and fables of pagans. God's truth. Ninth, the fish and the fishermen signify the soul and those who go after them. Tenth, the salt pools signify the lukewarm Christians whose punishment is a useful warning to others. Dr. Block describes how recent Christians interpret these part of the book of Ezekiel in similar and sometimes different ways. Common now is to read it actually more similar to the early church. So understanding it through allegory, which is more of a figurative speech. However, Dr. Block notes, and I think I should share that, some Christians experience a more modern interpretation, probably due to the influence of the Enlightenment and Industrial Age. So a number of Christians sought to interpret the scripture in a more literal way, as if the stories were descriptive, like a historical account or scientific account in that sort of way, like this is going to happen. That became a widely common and popular way to think, read, and write in that period is to think in that more literal sense without figurative expression. So there are some Christians who do interpret this part of Ezekiel as an, a temple building, actual, on Mount Zion, actual, with literal waters issuing forth from the building. Here's the thing. Can God contravene nature and physical laws to do glorious miracles? Of course. Yes, he can. Is that what this part of scripture is saying? I honestly don't know. So my stance is to hold a loose hand on this thinking with a sense of confidence that God can do anything, and also placing a high weight on the original language and cultural context that the Lord himself chose to tell his story in order to understand it in the clearest sense. So what do you think? Is this part of the story real but figurative, meaning the exact how of the new river and the new land is unclear? Or is this part of the story real and literal? It happens as it is characterized in a very specific way. Up to you. <laughs> Dr. Daniel Block has a nutrient-dense scholarly biblical account of Ezekiel and his commentaries, which if you're from Biola University, you can access physically or electronically through their library. Ezekiel ends with this astonishing account of renewal of God's divine grace, where he's not only conquering enemies, but he's saving us from ourselves, from us becoming his enemy. That's how much he loves us. And this new temple is characterized as being unrestricted for all 12 tribes of Israel, so all of his people, to access him and worship. Also, in the end, there is this total reversal where the story started, where Yahweh was leaving the city. Do you remember that? So specifically in chapters, I think it was 8 through 11. 
And then here, Yahweh returns to the city. And this city bears a new name. So brand makeover, Yahweh is there. In closing, Dr. Block shared this wonderful comparison because what I've learned is that so often the authors of the Bible are making qualifications and clarifications to existing places, people, and ideas. So differentiating who Yahweh God is from the other existing cultures, religions, and things of the time. In this case, the square layout of the city I described with the 12 gates may resemble the sacred precinct of Marduk in Babylon. However, Ezekiel is making edits, so instead of the naming of the gates after Babylonian gods, as Babylon did, with their nine-gate system, Ezekiel names them after the tribal figureheads of Israel. So where Babylon seems to be giving a sense of sacredness to the city, Ezekiel's concrete naming of the 12 tribes describes it as the people city, assembled from every part of the nation. Dr. Block also notes that this new city would not give one tribe political power over the other. Remember the wars and separation of Israel over the capital city of Jerusalem, which became the Judite capital, and the other ten tribes went north and only Benjamin stayed? In chapter 45, verse 6, this city will not have king, in quote, rights, which is characterizing the city differently. It's something more common, is the understanding, and it was open to the entire Israel population. This doesn't make the city secular or without spiritual significance, but the human kings and one tribe rights, that period of time was over. Remember, this city's new name is Yahweh Sumah, which means Yahweh is here. So what is clear is that the city is his, and therefore the purpose is also clear. Dr. Block points the frequent and focused use of Nasi in Hebrew, which is something akin to head of state, chief of justice, president. It's the important one, the one worthy of worship. That's who this city belongs to, and that's the name it bears. And we know this to be true. Drumroll, please. That's right. This person is God himself. Pray for me. I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.